Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode number 74. Today I got to hang out with my pal Christy and we had to dive into self-regulation. What does that even mean? How do we teach kids how to regulate their emotions? Should that be our goal? All of the things. We got real nerdy in this one. We could go on forever. There was actually a large conversation that happened before we even started recording that was super nerdy and delicious. And finally, we were like, oh, we have to hit record and just dive in. But I'm really excited for this one, guys, because this is what I find to be the focus in a lot of schools these days is like teaching kids to regulate their emotions so they can exhibit pro-social behaviors. And spoiler alert, that's not my goal for kids. I am really jazzed to dive into this one with y'all. And I hope that you get something out of it. All right. Let's do this thing. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass-Campbell. Yeah, so I became a fan of yours that you probably didn't even know during Barb O'Neill's Transform Challenging Behavior Online Conference, and then I started to um, search everywhere for all of your work because you actually started off with this conversation about mechanisms versus strategies, which we'll get to later, but that's where I fell in love with you. But for those of you who, that are listening that don't know my new BFF <laughs> with Alyssa, I'm going to give her a chance to kind of introduce herself. If she wants to explain what the mechanism versus strategies, that's cool. Um, but then we're going to dive deep into what is self-regulation, what it isn't, some of the myths about it, and then what I've been um, most intrigued by in terms of Alyssa's work around, um, in particular, processing uh, strong emotions. So, okay, with that, Alyssa, tell us a little bit about you and your work. Well, thank you. That's so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I, thanks for Google searching me. Yeah, so I my master's is in early childhood, and a colleague and I were working at the same school, and we were at this resource-rich school, and we had like an OT who would come every week, and an SLP who was uh, also a contractor who would come, I think, every two weeks or something like that. So we had a lot of support staff, and we were connected to a university so we could do research. And she reached out to me and was like, hey, I feel like we are doing something different. And she was teaching preschool. I was an infant toddler. 
And she was like, I don't really know what it is yet, but I want to explore this and write a book with you. And I was like, honestly, I was drinking a mimosa at the time. And I was like, sure. Uh, (laughs) And so she was like, all right, cool. We started exploring it and seeing what we were doing. And in doing so, we ended up developing a method we call the collaborative emotion processing method really serves as like a how-to guide for responding to emotions in a way that builds emotional intelligence. And as a part of the SEP method, we call it has five components and one of the five is adult child interactions. That's the usually the juicy, like sexy one that everyone wants to know about. And in the, in the adult child interactions, we developed five phases of emotion processing. What are you going through to process an emotion? And this is what we're really going to be diving into today, Christy. And phase four of that is coping, which is what reeled you in here. And so many of us are turning to coping mechanisms and not coping strategies. Yes, speaking of the mimosa, right? What's that? Speaking of mimosas. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, (laughs) exactly. And so what... What happens, though, is that we naturally develop coping mechanisms. It's how we survive. It is what our body is designed to do to keep us alive. And it's often our response to hard emotions is that we're like, ooh, let me distract myself or let me put a substance into my body that helps numb this feeling or let me obsessively do something so that I feel like I have control. Uh, Let me scroll on a screen. These are all coping mechanisms. And when we were doing this, so we developed the method, we researched it, and now we are writing a book on it. And what we, what we learned was that this was a huge step that people were often missing. That we weren't teaching coping strategies from a young age. What we were doing is sometimes letting a kid express for a little bit, maybe even validating it and empathizing with them, and then jumping to problem solving. Now we're like, okay, we did our part, let's solve the problem. And we were missing this very crucial step of coping. And so we'll we'll chat about that in, in today's thing for sure, because problem solving is not my goal for a while. <laughs> well, I think even, even, I think you were gracious in saying that what we would do is, um, you know, name it to tame it with empathy. I don't even think empathy oftentimes because we have so much, what my followers know is shark music. We just want the big emotion to be over because it's making me look bad or it's going to create havoc because, you know, when one kid goes, they like to bring all the rest with them. Or if you're a parent, you know, we're not going to make it through dinner without a scene or through Target. So I think that I understand why we're less than empathetic, but I do think that was generous to say that we jump too quickly to problem solving because we just want a solution. And I think that's why I resonated so much with the idea of the coping mechanism versus the strategy because it's the short-term fix. It's the quick, maybe not easy, but it at least feels better faster. That's true. And when we tap into coping strategies, we often feel the hard thing, and so does the tiny human, for longer than if we just numb it with a mechanism. Uh, But that's a short-term fix, and I'm here for the long-term game. Um, Yeah, and so then I started Seed and Sew, and I now serve folks around the world in in various ways as a podcaster, as a speaker, a consultant, 
uh, working with folks to raise emotionally intelligent humans. And I always think people like, I think anyway, and I didn't ask you this before, but where does the name of your business and work come from? I like, I think people understand us better when they understand like our humor or our history with why those words. Yeah, I love it. So seed is one that I just always connect with those tiny humans because it is the long-term game where you're putting something into the ground and you are taking care of it meticulously and every single plant or every single seed is going to need something different uh, to thrive. And that it's, it's, you're taking care of it for a long time before you see that like blooming plant or that flower or whatever. And so that for me, is just like clear, tiny human visual. Um, and then, so I believe in my core in the village. And so I imagine it's so S E W because I imagine like a quilt where everyone brings their piece and we sew them together to create this parent modern village, I guess, uh, where we're all collaborating, collaborating in raising these tiny humans, whether it's experts in the field of early ed or parents in the trenches that we're all bringing our piece of the quilt together. Perfect. Thank you. I just think that helps people and then they'll remember it also. Um, and then we'll put in the show notes, of course, how to track you and find you. Perfect. Now, Christy, before we go on, will you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and who you are and what brings you here? Um, yeah, so I'm uh, Christy. I have this really obnoxious last name, so I'll just tell you the quick backstory on it. Because uh, people are always like, before they introduce me, they're like, um, can we practice this a few times? I'm like, it's just Christy. And then they're like, well, Dr. Christy. And it's like, no, just really, like, keep it simple, people. This is who I am. And in fact, most people call me by my initials, uh, KPF. So um, I was Christy Pretty growing up, and we were always the pretty, pretty girls, which was annoying because we're really not that pretty. No offense to my sisters. Um, but then I got married in 1902. Um, I was actually engaged on my 19th birthday, which just makes my mom still cringe. And so I became Franzak. So I got rid of the pretty, and I was Christy Franzak for many, many years. And then I went to graduate school. And this is how silly I was, Alyssa. My husband was studying molecular biology and developmental genetics, and I was studying early intervention. And I was afraid that when we published, people would be confused by us as authors. Well, nobody that's an early interventionist working with infants and toddlers is probably reading about zebrafish. So I stuck the preddy back in to keep us separate, and then he became a cabinet maker. So... <laughs> I ended up with Christy Pretty Franzak. So that's why we go by just Christy or KPF. Um, that's my long story. But um, yeah, early interventionist by training, by trade, by heart. Um, I grew up in the West. So I grew up in Idaho and I went to school at the University of Oregon. And then I was, um, I came to Ohio in 1997 as faculty in early intervention. So I was uh, faculty at Kent State University for 16 years, preparing people to work with young children with diverse abilities. And then in 2013, I was on sabbatical. So I was a full professor with tenure, living the good life in the ivory tower and decided I couldn't go back. And so um, in 2013, I started a company with um, uh, an, another early interventionist. We called it B2K. 
So now I'll tell you why I think my company was clever. So her name was Bonnie. Well, her name is Bonnie and mine's Christy. And um, we covered birth to kindergarten. So we loved, we thought we were very clever of the B2K was like Bonnie and Christy, but it was also birth to kindergarten. And then um, eventually she went on a different path, but I again kept the name. Um, and so really it's this, um, love that we have and that I continue with of um, kind of like your idea of the seed is uh, really supporting our youngest citizens and then supporting the people who are building and nurturing those youngest citizens. So my work is really with children with uh, diverse abilities. Um, when I was practicing, I was a home visitor for children with significant disabilities. So my passion though is really preschoolers that age in development and um, children with very diverse abilities. I love it. I love it. Well, my passion is infant toddler, but I can hang with some preschoolers. And then you can be my B and I can be Vakay again. Right? <laughs> Perfect. All right, let's dive into this. All right. So one of the things that you said, that, like, I was like, but wait, you're my new BFF. You're like, I don't like self-regulation. Or you said something to that effect. I'm like, oh, but I publish on it every day. <laughs> so let's maybe talk a little bit about, like, how you think about self-regulation, how I think about it, how the world thinks about it, what we like, what we don't like, whatever. Totally. So I do like self-regulation <laughs> when, when it's when it is what i think it is or what i imagine it to be but what the what i often see and how i feel like it is being marketed i don't love okay. um so there are four components to emotional intelligence self-reg is one self-reg self-awareness social awareness and empathy and so we, I, I mean, I want to raise emotionally intelligent humans. Self-reg is part of that. But what it isn't for me and what I think can often happen is that we're expecting kids to have self-control um, or to really just not express their emotions. Um, and so we're seeing, I, I'm seeing kiddos suppressing their emotions and we're calling it self-regulation. We're saying that they've regulated, but really they've suppressed it. And so they're not processing it and then we continue to see it come out in other ways. Yeah. So I want to go I want to go right into the processing but I want to back up because people who follow the revolution so that's what I call it is the um, early care and education revolution. Uh, we also talk about emotional intelligence and we 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 went a little differently than than what some of the research so there we have five components. So you're going to have five and I'm going to have five but you had four that you just mentioned which self-reg is a part of emotional intelligence. And so people have done my emotional intelligence quiz or other things, just know there are five constructs in my brain around EQ. But the good thing is, no matter what, they're always self-regulation is part of those constructs. For What's your fifth? Um, spirituality. So we actually did, I'll probably not get them all of a sudden, uh, Alyssa, but self-reg, social awareness, situational awareness, um, self-awareness, I say that, and spirituality. So self-awareness, self-regulation, social awareness, situational awareness, spirituality. And, and so that's, that. but self-reg is, of course, one yeah. of them. So perfect. Okay. And I like how you talk about suppressing, because I think us as humans, and especially as older adults, we know what that means to kind of like 
you know, like some people will say, I'm a recovering Catholic or I'm a recovering da da da. I learned to suppress my emotions. Like we couldn't, I don't mean to blame that on, on Catholics. I just, no, I, was, I grew up Catholic and that's how I feel. Right. <laughs> so talk a little bit about what we do, what happens, we, what we're doing to it, children when we rush it. Yeah. So it's, it's rushing it, but it's also things that happen even before that, right? Okay. So, so many of us grew up in a culture where we were hearing things like, you're okay, you're fine, man up, suck it up. Mm. Essentially like, put, buckle up, sister, you're yeah. up, move on. And it, 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 that's definitely a part of rushing it. But what we were saying was, oh, your hard feelings make me feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Or even like, you don't need to be anxious, or that's not that scary, or that's not hard, or that's not to worry about. Yeah. You don't need to be nervous about going to school for the first time. Right. No. Oh, well, now I don't feel nervous. Thanks. Right. Thank you. Uh, that's, all. <laughs> that's all I needed. Uh, yeah, no, but I think that what we're doing now as adults, because we're still carrying a lot of this on, is that we don't know how to feel those things ourselves. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to teach our tiny humans. So a lot of my work is working with adults on building these things, especially coming back to a lot of the time self-awareness. What does it feel like when you start to feel an emotion? Because that has to come before we can regulate. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and otherwise, and, and so we talk a lot about like starting to feel it at like a three or a four. Where are you feeling it in your body? What does that feel like? Because when we can start to recognize it, then the regulation is much easier to do. Mm -hmm. And then we can go through our emotion processing. Um, so for me, self-regulation is really like, I want kids to start to learn what it feels like when they're having that hard feeling. Say I'm feeling left out or disappointed or embarrassed. Like, where does that, where do I feel it? What does it feel like? And then how do I find my calm or control it in my body, right? So that I'm not throwing something across the room or hitting another kid. And, and so that I can move through and tap into a coping strategy that helps me feel calm again. So then I can solve that problem. Now, what do I, at the very end, once we are calm again, then we're solving that problem. But a lot of times what we're doing is we're like, don't hit, don't throw that. You can go into this corner and get calm again by yourself. And really what they learn is, oh, if I express this hard feeling, I'm, put off to the side until I appear calm, yeah. but they're not fully. And then we jump and then we solve the problem after that. And there's, for me, there's like an even deeper, harder level because, and I appreciate, and I want to talk a little bit about this because you worked with infants and toddlers so much, you know, for children who are um, neuroatypical or just young from a brain or, you know, even children, I was in Spain the other day working with um, students that were much older for me that outside of my comfort zone, you know, they were early teenagers, but had significant disabilities, significant cerebral palsy, significant. So at least motorically, they weren't able to communicate who I, you know, only until we get good at technology, can we have them express themselves better, but they were so agitated. And people just wanted them to calm. So I think this has big implications in my brain for not just typical development and how we let tiny humans 
go through the developmental process, but that even for at different ages, we have to be really thoughtful about how we help children who are not yet verbal or who have a different way of communicating, how we recognize that they're escalating and help create strategies that we may have to apply for them, but that are that are really strategies and not mechanisms. So we don't put the iPad in front of them. or We don't just take their wheelchair and put them by the window because we know that soothes that anxiety. Do you know what I mean? Like it's completely totally. tangent, but it, to me, I see it as a really big issue for us. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think, so I'll, it, I got a story that came to my mind when you were saying that. The other day in Tiny Humans Big Emotions, I run this virtual like membership program that I do a live workshop every month. And in May, my workshop was responding to tantrums in okay. a way that builds emotional intelligence. Okay. The most popular group of parents in this, uh, the, in, in this group that is the three to five-year-old age gap. Okay. And so we got a lot of preschool parents in this, in this group. And one mom who has been following Seed for a while, uh, she is consuming all my stuff. She's putting it into practice. We, she, attends this workshop. She leaves. She's like, great. I have all these strategies. And then we do a Q&A two weeks later. She comes back to the Q&A and she's like, when I'm going through this with my daughter, she's now saying, no calm, mama, no calm. And I'm like, oh, great. What she's telling you is I'm not ready to cope yet. Mm. I still need to feel this. Mm. And it's another way that we're often rushing to the problem solving is that we're like, okay, I did the steps. I validated you. I let you right. And and it worked yesterday. Why aren't you calm today? Yeah. And let's go. Let's I do go. all the right good, things. Right? I was nice about it. <laughs> totally. But let's and go. You're right. And we often have this timeline where we're like, okay, I'm, I'm responding the way that I'm supposed to as an adult. Why isn't it working? And I think sometimes, especially for these kiddos who can't say things like no calm mama, what they they are saying it with their actions that they're saying, I'm not ready to feel calm yet. And as an adult, it happens all the time to me where I'm having an emotion and I talk to somebody and they try to solve my problem or they try to help me cope with something. I'm like, no, I just want to feel it a little bit longer. I'm not ready to tap into go, go there a little bit deeper too because I understand that like I tell people like sometimes I'm purposefully um not being nice to my husband like I'm purposely being like I'm not talking to you right but it's a conscious decision when you're young or when you flipped your lid and you're working from your amygdala or your reptilian brain or your neuroatypical to this point, when you said, you know, I'm not ready yet, can you just say a little bit more about like, that's not always a conscious decision. So it's not like your two-year-old saying, mom, I'm not ready to be calm. So I'm saying, here's my finger, no calm. It's not a conscious awareness, right? See, no. let's talk a little bit about that from your lens. Totally. So what we developed with the set method was this essentially like a flow chart of like, I think of it as like a Cosmo quiz. If, if, did this happen? Yes or no? Go here. And part of that is to give us as adults this guide of like, have I done at this point everything I can do? And if I'm not seeing progress with it, it usually means they're not ready to go to the next step yet. Mm. Um, and a lot of the times where this is, is that like, okay, say we allow a kid to feel, that's phase one, we're allowing them to express. And then we move on to phase two where we identify what they're feeling. Like, I can tell you're really frustrated. You didn't want to leave the playground and it's time to go. Um, 
now they might not be like, okay, yeah, let me tap into a coping strategy now, right? Like they might not be there yet. They might still be frustrated and still need to express it longer. And so when I say, how can I help your body feel calm? Would you like a hug or would you like to read a book or whatever coping strategy I'm offering? I usually offer two, one touch, one non-touch. If they don't want either of those yet, if they're not tapping into either of those, then I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of space so that you can feel frustrated. When you're ready, we can start to cope. But, so I can already hear people here in shark music. So a teacher's got... 20 kids out on the playground or do this parallel. A parent's got one kid on the playground. doesn't matter the number, but somebody has to get calm enough to get back into the car or back into the building. Like you can't just have the rest of the day to decide you're ready. Like I can hear people. So let's talk a little bit about how, where that dance is between understanding and then people jump straight to but we got to leave or it's not the choice or they're going to manipulate me this hair all the time <laughs> they're going to learn that if they just cry i'll let them stay on the monkey bars longer i am loving ready to eat meals in this season of life things are really busy over here with a toddler and a newborn and i don't always want to be focusing on meal planning and ordering groceries Factors, fresh, never frozen meals are chef crafted and dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. There's zero prep and zero mess. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup involved. And holy moly, do I need that right now. I also love that I can order as much or as little as I need by choosing my meals every week and I can pause or reschedule my deliveries anytime. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast restaurant quality meals with no cooking required and there are more than 60 add-ons like pancakes and smoothies to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Head to factormeals.com slash village50 and use code village50 to get 50% off. That's code village50 at factormeals.com slash village50 to get 50% off. With spring on the horizon, but not quite here yet in Vermont, I've been looking for simple ways to give my body the energy boost it needs and keep up with healthy habits, especially on those tired mornings when I'm just feeling drained. And that's why I decided to give AG1 a try. Not only does AG1 deliver my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more, but it's a powerful healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel more energized and ready to take on the day. It's a morning ritual that gives me peace of mind and then I'm getting comprehensive nutrition that supports my immune system and keeps me going all day. As a parent of two amazing kids, longevity is on my mind more than ever before. I want to make sure I'm taking really good care of myself so that I can continue to show up for the moments that matter. Every day, AG1 helps me build long-term health with daily nutrients that support brain, gut, and immune health. All it takes is one scoop a day, and I'm setting myself up for the long run. AG1 is the supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily, and that's why I'm jazzed to welcome them as a new sponsor. 
If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and 5 free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com village. That's drinkag1.com village. Check it out. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great question. So um, in this example where we're like making a transition, we're going to leave somewhere. This is a common thing that I hear too, Christy. um, For us, I'm still going to hold the boundary, right? So um, say we like, all right, it's time. I've given them their five minute warning. Now it's time to go. And now they're throwing their tantrum. I I will validate for them what they're feeling. And then I'll say, we can talk about it more when you're ready. Would you like to walk to the car or should I carry you? Because the boundary is still standing. I am still going to hold the boundary. We're still going to go. And I want them to learn that, that this is my expectation. When I say it's time to go or whatever it is, whether you're coming in from the playground, going into the car, whatever, uh, that I'm going to hold the boundary. What I'm not doing in this moment is saying like, oh, we're going to come back tomorrow or that we'll get a snack in the car or trying to solve it and make them stop expressing. That's what I'm not doing in this moment. What I am doing is saying, would you like to walk to the car? Should I carry you? We'll talk about it when you're ready. So it doesn't mean that the uh, expression is going to continue on the playground. It might continue in the car. It might continue in the classroom. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, with the, when you said that, it, I, it was such a gentle way to say, they're going to keep screaming, but you said, the expression is going to continue. <laughs> I just thought that was like such a nice way to say, oh, I, I'm not saying this is a solving. The kid's still going to be like yelling and you might be dragging them, but um, rushing it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it, that's exactly it. I... I think, but I think that for us, we often have these like big expectations of like, oh, they're just going to follow the rules. Yeah. And it's not true. And then from the classroom, the biggest thing that I see is this fear of losing control. Yeah, for sure. Well, and Alyssa, what I was thinking in my head was that the reason the teacher is trying to problem solve it is because she can't take a screaming kid down the hallway because the rule is that you walk with your hands in your pockets and a bubble in your mouth because the third graders are taking a very important test. (laughs) So there's high stakes to this. It's not like she doesn't want to set the boundaries, but that her shark music is that I'm going to look like or be perceived as an inadequate teacher. So somebody else is going to intervene, even though I have it you know, I'm letting them process, I'm following the, Alyssa's five steps or Christie's four steps or whoever's whatever, but now I still have to make it down the hallway without looking like a fool or without having a teacher coming out trying to help me manage, which we'll come back to. But, you know, yeah. finish what you're going to say about that. But I think it's important for that self-awareness that I'm trying to solve it because of what I'm fearing it's going to look like as we go into the building. Totally. The story you're telling yourself is that I'm a bad teacher or I look like a bad teacher that doesn't have control of my classroom if I have a kid who's expressing emotion in a place that's inconvenient. Yes. That's the story you're telling yourself. That is the story we're telling ourselves all day, every day. Yep. And in actuality, if we put a group of teachers in a room, I bet every single one of them would share that that's their story too. But in real life, 
that's not going to happen, right? That we are going, kids aren't like, is now a good time to feel my feelings for you? Does now work? Is this an appropriate place to do it? That's no high stakes. Nobody's watching. Right. That's not how life works, man. And in the same for parents, this is yeah. going to happen in the grocery store. It's going to happen at the family party. It's going to happen in church. It's going to happen in these places that are so inconvenient for you yeah. because it's not their job to express at your convenience. Yeah, definitely. So I, I, I want people to hear that the expression can continue. Hopefully you've done things to reduce stressors or that by identifying the name it to tame it or whatever the other things that we suggest in our work is reducing it perhaps, but we're not rushing it. And our goal is not to problem solve. So I also appreciate what you said. And I want people to hear it again, because it's like, some of us would talk about negotiating or bartering or, or saying, you know, well, when we get inside, you'll get to have choice time. Or when you get in the car, you get to have a snack. So even, even then, the way that you said it back to us was you're still jumping to problem solving. So even if you're like, oh, I don't do those things because I don't negotiate with terrorists. Well, you're actually maybe not negotiating, but you are trying to problem solve. Totally. You're not setting the boundaries or working through the processes. Not yet. So the thing is, if they're expressing, they're in their amygdala. They're not in a problem-solving brain. They're not in a rational brain. They're saying, I'm feeling something hard, yeah. and I'm doing everything I know how to do in the moment with that feeling. And without really consciously. It's my body is doing what it knows to do based mm -hmm. upon history, circumstances, and my temperament. It's not like it asked me, should I hit my mom right now? It's like, hit your mom. Right, right. And, and I will add to that, like, expectation and, and learned skills, right? Yeah. So some of this is that if we have never expected them to express in a different way or haven't um, taught them ways to identify what they're feeling early on. So if they're walking around at like an eight out of 10, ready to just like blow yeah. and hit. They live there. They live yeah. at eight out of 10. Right. Well, and not so... One thing that was really cool is we had one kiddo who was hitting a lot, right? And so what the teachers did was talk to him about uh, the early identifications. They would say, oh, I see that your fists are all balled up and I can see your face all scrunched up. You look so mad. Oh, I see that you're shaking. It looks like you're getting even madder. And so what they were teaching him slowly was how it feels when it's building, where does it, where do you feel it in your body? Where's it starting to build? It means the teacher had to be mindful of this, right? So she had to be aware of him and when it was building rather than just responding or reacting when he had hit somebody, but watching him to see like how that body language is building and teaching him. And so what he ended up doing was saying, oh, I can feel my fist. And he was repeating these words. My face is so scrunched. I'm so mad. And then we could teach him where to go from there and what he could do so that he didn't hit. But it took a little while for him to learn those self-awareness skills of it building because kids don't have to walk around at an eight, a nine or a 10. No, and I feel like so, this is where, you know, I was trained as a very strict um, behaviorist. And mm -hmm. so when I read Stuart Shanker's book on self-reg, it was this game changer for me. It's like, oh, so the world isn't so simple as a child is trying to get attention or escape and that I need to 
ignore it, to extinguish it. Like, holy crap, there's all these other things. And so I can hear people say, wait, wait, Alyssa, if I sit there and describe it and give my child's attention, give a child attention, then I'm just reinforcing it. And so if it's okay with you, I've just decided that we can't use the word reinforcement anymore because nobody understands the difference between positive and negative reinforcement and punishment anyway. So we're just doing behaviorism badly. So I've just decided let's just stop talking about it because we don't, I myself sometimes get confused, you know, and so I don't want us to say we're reinforcing it by giving it attention. Totally, I agree. So it's like, that's now no longer in our vernacular. So I just want anybody listening to say, hey, wait, no, wait, the behavior coach or the behavior team told me I had to ignore it. Yeah, hard no. So if you ignore it, that kid's, not, <laughs> that kid's not building the skill set that they need, right? So every form, every behavior to me is a communication. They're saying, here's where I am right now. Now, here's the skill set I don't have. Yeah. And they might have it. In a rational brain. So I get this a lot from parents. Like, yes. They know course. what they're supposed to they do. They know better, Alyssa. They know. They're yeah. doing this on purpose. They're giving me that look. Yeah, totally. And there are two things here. One, they might know that when they're in a rational brain. They just might. like I know things in a rational brain of that course. my feelings brain just aren't accessible, man. <laughs> uh, it's the same with our tiny humans. Or number two, maybe it is an attention request, in which case we need to look at ways that we can teach this child to ask for attention in a different way. Yeah. Just this morning, I got off the phone with a friend of mine who was like, hey, my kiddo keeps saying you're stupid to everybody. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was like, it started and we, he now he's getting attention for it. She's like, he knows it gets a rise out of me. And so he's getting attention. He knows. He's he knows. Not shame. And, and the thing is, he does know. Mm -hmm. But if it's for attention, which I think it is, what I want to say to him is, oh, I hear you're saying you're stupid. Are you trying to get my attention? If you would like me to come play, you could say or you could do blank. So that he has another choice. I'm not mad at you for saying it. I'm not going to like blow my lid here. I'm going to acknowledge that you're saying it and that this is what I think you're feeling. And here's another way you can communicate that to me. It's another form of expression, right? So it would be the same for me if he's hitting. I would hold his hands and say, I'm not going to let you hit me. It looks like you're really frustrated. Yeah. If you're feeling frustrated, you could blank. But see, listen, this is what I think is so important about the work because it's still about teaching children. I hear so many times that people think that we're just being soft or we're just letting them do it. Like I can hear people and it's like, no, right then you have to say, no, it's, I'm not going to let you hit me, but I, you know, we're going to work through it or I'm going to give you what you can do instead, or we're going to do this. That's part of teaching versus just, it's not okay to hit me. Mm -hmm. Like totally. And you know what? If that was working, if the approach of it's not okay to hit me was working, yeah. we wouldn't be having this conversation, Christy. No, you're that right. isn't working. The idea of managing your classroom behavior isn't working. No. Instead, let's teach kiddos this self-awareness and ability to process their emotions so that we can all navigate this socially together. And that means for kids who are nonverbal or kids who, let's say, use an augmented communication device, if I see one more 
communication board or book in somebody's backpack, I think I just might throw a fit. I am going to go all amygdala, right? Because it's like, that's their voice. And if you want them to tell you they're upset, but I'll tell you, listen, one time I had this kid who used an eye gaze and he said, I don't feel well. And people would go, oh, you feel fine. And then he'd look at it again, I don't feel well. And they'd do this, they'd touch his head, you don't have a fever, you're fine. I swear, like eight adults came by and told him he felt fine. Yet he kept communicating in the only way the poor kid had, which was, I don't feel good on his eye gaze. And yet that was just another form of us rushing through it or saying, it's not convenient right now for you not to feel well. And I, I checked your temperature, you're good, but you're really not. So. It's for me, it's just another example of how it's bigger than just typical development of kids struggling with big emotions as they're going to because they're young. It's also for kids who have particular ways to communicate if we haven't allowed them to and then we don't accept what they're saying. Totally. Yeah. And I think that this happens with infant toddler very yeah. frequently because they don't have the words yet yes. uh, to express. And so like in my classroom, we had um, not just your feelings chart, if you have one, should not be like hidden in a corner, right? It's right. Just something that I used an Amazon box. It was definitely not fancy. And I cut a piece of cardboard with a couple strips of Velcro. And so it was something we could hand to a kid or that we could move around the room. Same with our coping strategies board. We had visual aids where they could point to it. They could pull a picture of their lovey off of there. Um, they could pull a picture of them giving me a hug off of there so that they could communicate with us what they want to help their body feel calm in a way that we weren't like, oh, let me, let me um, you need to come over here. I see this so much in classrooms. You need I to come know. over here and point to it on the wall. Like, oh, okay, that kid just learned to crawl. Like, no, they're not going to do that. We, it's our job to present these things to them and make sure that they have all the tools they need to communicate with us. And then such a great point, we have to trust them. Yes. You know, it's convenient. Yeah. And you know what? Trust is a huge part in the preschool age too that I see where we're like, well, they, they usually hit or they might do X, Y, and Z or they might whatever. That trust has got to start from you. You've got to say like, I, and I say these words to kids all the time. Yeah, you can climb up there. I trust you. Yeah. You'll figure it out. You'll see how to navigate it. Uh, I let them know I trust you all the time. And I think it's so important because like the other big soapbox I get on is with snack time, you know, I have this phrase I hear in preschool all the time, you get what you get. So, and you don't get upset. No, and you That's don't get upset. And if you're not hungry right now, and then you're hungry in five minutes, it's like, sorry, we already had, I offered it. And you said you weren't hungry. It's like, how are we teaching people self-regulation uh, if we're not even going to value self-awareness? So the kid's like, I'm not hungry. And you're like, well... I think you are, eat now. Or the kid's like, now I am hungry. Like, no, you're not, you just ate. Like, it's the most fundamental thing, which is hunger. We're telling them, don't trust your own body. You're not hungry, you're not tired, you don't need that. How do we expect them to do something with a bigger emotion? Totally, totally. And I think I understand a little bit around the food stuff because there are boundaries and limitations, right? So even speaking from the infant toddler perspective, at least in Massachusetts, when my kids were eating, everyone ate at the same time because yes. my eating table was my art table, was of my, right? like, 
And, and so there had to be boundaries around that. However, uh, I came into, I was doing consulting, came into a preschool classroom. This little girl was having a hard emotion about her Nutrigrain bar that had been broken in half and now it doesn't taste as good. And she told her mom not to put it in her lunchbox because it was going to break, right? And so she's right. and her teachers are like trying to problem solve with her. And I just came over and I offered her a hug and helped her find her calm. And we found her calm before we solved the problem. But then we, towards it's towards the end of snack time. I knew they had five minutes left. And so I told her, I was like, listen, after we'd problem solved, like she was going to tape it together. And then she was like, oh, the tape would taste gross, right? She's going through the whole thing. And so she gets to the end and she's still not sure what she's going to do. And I was like, listen, I know it's not going to taste very good. You do not have to eat your Nutrigrain bar if you don't want to. We're not going to have lunch for two hours. Your body might get hungry in that time. It might not. I don't know how you're going to feel. <laughs> but you have a choice right now. You can eat that Nutrigrain bar and maybe you won't be hungry until we get to lunch. Or maybe you still will. I'm not sure what's going to happen. Or you don't have to eat that Nutrigrain bar and your body might get hungry earlier or it won't. I really don't know. And she was like, ugh, full eye rolls throughout the whole thing. I'll eat the Nutrigrain bar. And so she did. She ate it. Uh, but there's also, I think, those real life things of we don't always have access to a food or to a bathroom or whatever. And so there are there are some scheduling things that have to happen. But I think if we phrase it to kids of like, I know you might not be starving right now. We're not going to have lunch for a couple hours. Yeah. So your body might not be to your belly might not be totally empty, um, but you might want to give it a little snack so that you're not hungry by lunchtime. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful both and. So it's not that well, then don't eat or eat everything because you might someday be hungry. It's really letting them think about it. what does it really feel like right now? Because maybe I was just distracted by playing, but I really am hungry. So you're really doing that mindfulness of that internal attunement, you know, yeah. and, and being aware of, am I really hungry? Am I not? And so, um, but it just, it's, it's just all too often we tell kids when they are hungry or when they're not hungry, oh, you know? Right. And I understand from licensing or schedules or food allergies or, or, or that the, again, back to your word boundaries, but when there don't have to be those boundaries, uh, I may have said it grammatically incorrect. Uh, when they, when there isn't a pressing reason, then I always opt for promoting self-awareness versus me telling you how you feel. Totally. And yeah. you don't have to eat, right? Like, yeah. You don't, I'm never going to say you have to eat. I am going to tell you when our next meal is and how long that will be. And you can make this decision for yourself. Um, yeah, I guess. Uh, and if that kid pounds snack and they're like more, my kid's signing more to me. And I'm like, oh, their snack is all done. I'm not going to be like, oh no, your belly's full. You had enough. Like, no, we're going to find you more food, kid. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and I think these are very sensitive things because we do have kids who have feeding issues we have kids who come from significant trauma around food so they there this needs to be very thoughtful because uh, people i can also hear them saying they will eat continuously they will never stop mm -hmm. and there are definitely conditions of that as well but if again my mode of communication is sign language and i sign more and you tell me you don't need more or i ignore your communication why am i going to use that right 
mode in the future. Right. Or if we're not going to give more in that instance, then I would validate if that kid comes from a yeah. place where they didn't know where their next meal was coming from or when right. it was coming, of course, they're going to have food insecurity. Yes. We can help them learn that, right? That like, we're going to have lunch in two hours. We're going to have lunch again soon. Yes. Your belly might still be a little bit hungry. We don't have any snack left today. We are going to eat in two hours. But is that thing you said about trust, right? So that they trust that indeed you will give it to them in two hours. They don't really know what two hours is, but they understand someone down the road. They trust you that you will. They trust they aren't going to have to fight for it. They trust that, you know, and I feel like that's what people need to do. And maybe you need to do it in smaller increments. So maybe that child needs you know, in an hour to go and check and see that the food is still there waiting for them with their name on it. Whatever you need to do to build that trust. But these are all intentional things. We don't just expect kids who have these insecurities or these um, uh, disorders even perhaps Here. to know it, right? Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, You are not alone, and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Hey, are you a parent of a teenager? Are you feeling overwhelmed about how to be what they need while also holding limits and boundaries that keep them safe? Are you tired of conversations that negate how messy this season of parenting is? Well, I've got you. My name is Casey O'Rourke. I am a positive discipline trainer, parent coach, and the host of the Joyful Courage podcast. Every week I come to you with an interview, digging into tough topics with experts I trust and solo shows that go deep into the personal growth and mindset needed to raise teens in a way that grows them into confident, capable young people. I am not afraid of getting real about the intersection of conscious parenting and the teen years, while also bringing in vulnerability, humor, and lightness. I'm walking the path with you and honored to serve. Listen to Joyful Courage on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. If you're loving this podcast, then you would love our Tiny Humans Big Emotions membership. Every month I go live on a different topic in emotional development so you can ask your questions in real time. Then I give you bonus tools for implementing it. And as if that wasn't already jazzy enough, we do a Q&A two weeks later so that you can come back and share what's going well and ask questions about things that you want some more support on. I get to guide you through implementing these approaches in real time so that we can raise emotionally intelligent humans together. 
The coolest part? You can have all of this for less than $15 a month. Less than 50 cents a day, friends. Head on over to tinyhumansbigemotions.com to join us for our next live workshop. While we're on the topic of food, that makes me think about the sensory systems and how big of a role they play in emotional regulation. In fact, I made this thing up, but I uh, created what I call the triangle of growth. Um, And it's the only three things that I'm paying attention to, especially birth to three, but really birth to five. The only three things I'm paying attention to developmentally. Uh, And it's language development, emotional development, and sensory development. So what I'm looking at here is, are any of these off? Are we seeing language delays? Okay, let's look at the other two and see if we're seeing any delays or challenges there. Because often when I see kids with a language delay, it's coming back to a sensory route. Um, And then it's affecting their emotional regulation. So I had this little girl, (coughs) excuse me, I had this little girl, she was just about two. And every single day we were on the playground before lunch. Every single day at like 10.45, we had lunch at 11, and like 10.45, she would start to melt. And the world was just way too big for her to handle, right? And honestly, at first, we were, it was just like annoying because we were like, sister, we had snack an hour and a half ago. Yeah. You are not dying right. hunger, right? Like, no, everything's fine. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's, it's as if we haven't fed her in days. And so from a, like an adult perspective, there's that initial... And it's okay to feel that. And it's okay. What I had to learn was, oh, that's what I'm feeling and that's okay. Let me process that so I can actually respond to her instead of reacting to the emotion I'm having. So I would do that, whatever, working my stuff, and then started saying, Tals, we're so close to lunch right now. And after lunch was nap. And would you like to come in with me and get it set up and you can start eating first? And she was like, yeah, I'm so hungry. And she was literally just turning two and she would just like fully melt into this. And once we got inside and she started eating, she would pound her food and she was the first one asleep. Mm -hmm. And so what we learned, it took us way too long to learn this, but what we learned was that her sensory systems really were dysregulated. She couldn't find her calm no matter what we gave her. She could be laying on my body, getting all the love and attention, still sobbing because she couldn't regulate her system, her emotional regulation, because her sensory systems were so out of whack right now. She's like, I'm hungry and I'm tired, (laughs) right? Like all the light bulbs are going off within her body. So it's so hard to regulate those emotions. And a lot of the times I think we have to take a look at these things. But let's unpack sensory for a minute because in the special ed world in particular, that word gets thrown around a lot. We have sensory rooms, occupational therapists have spent six to eight years studying it, but we chunk it down to one word. Some people think it's like, oh, you get a chew toy. It's like, no, we're not dogs, blah, blah, blah. So not that there aren't times and places for um, oral stimulation, but like kind of Now you've simplified the triangle in terms of language and emotion and sensory, but let's like peel back the sensory for a minute. Totally. Oh, everybody who follows Seed and So knows I'm obsessed with OTs. I think they just do the coolest work. I know. They're some of my favorite people too. uh, Well, because I couldn't do the work that I do without them. Like I said, these systems are intertwined. And I actually, uh, uh, an OT that 
Lauren, my co-creator of the method, and I worked hand in hand with a bunch. I had her on my podcast twice because I had her on and then I needed to bring her back for more. Um, she also was in the transform challenging behavior. We brought her into that with Barb. Um, she's just amazing. But what I learned from her just like blew my mind. So often, especially with parents, I find that when we're talking about sensory stuff, it goes one of two ways. One is, oh, like a water bin, like a sensory bin. Uh, or like Play-Doh, or some sort of thing that they're just touching, and that's yeah, a weak sense. But you're sensory play. Okay. And the other thing that I will hear is like, oh, like when they don't like how their clothes feel. Yeah, like there's a tag, or that this feels scratchy, and yeah. exactly. And so yeah, those are part of this, but the sensory systems are so much more complicated than that. And really what we're looking at at school and what often plays a huge role in emotions is making sure that these kiddos are getting enough vestibular input. So we're looking at, um, are they on the swings? Are we doing dips with babies where we're tipping their head in a different plane? Um, are we making sure that they're moving their body or that we are doing then like uh, the other one would be like big body play. So if I might be like throwing a kid into a beanbag or mm. having them jump off onto something, like using their big muscle groups. Because what really is happening with our sensory systems in, in, in the infant toddler world, if I see kids with motor delays, the very first thing I'm doing is seeing checking with an OT on things. Because what I want to know is, are their muscle groups communicating with each other? Are the arms saying to the legs, like, yeah, let's crawl and we're going to use the core to stabilize us? Like, are those things communicating? If not, we might see things like butt scooting or an army crawl. And those standalone are not a giant red flag. Those mixed with other sensory observations are. And then we can dive in deeper and see what would be best for this kid. Then we're creating a sensory plan, a sensory diet with an OT. Well, and I think, so even some of the, you just said like eight other words, but either, even as people think about vestibular, this made me think of Stuart Schenker's work as well, because I think sensory, you're right, people either think of like sensory tables and sensory materials, or people are hypersensitive um, to tactile things. But even when you started breaking apart sensory and you went to vestibular, I see this as what Stuart Shanker talks about in terms of um, how your body processes inputs. So it's that sort of what's coming in my eyes and then how does my body move through space? Where am I in space? What's around me in space? How much pressure do I need to apply to something? How much tightening of my core do I need to stay upright? Like I'm probably misrepresenting vestibular at this point, but it's all of that that people don't see that with problems around screen time are really having an impact. So for me on screen time, my eyes are super busy, but my body is super passive. So that becomes a long-term impact. Or I haven't done a lot of things where my uh, head is in a different plane, like I haven't gone upside down or I haven't had to, like I think of um, running a race and your body's running as fast as it can, but my arm has to move super slow to tag you without pushing you over. Like all of that, kids need practice to learn. Yeah, totally. And, and so much of it just happens naturally if we build it in, right? Like for us in our classroom, we had things like 
a little roadie. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's like a little giraffe-like animal that okay. essentially like a yoga ball that kids can sit on really. It's yes. made into an animal shape. They can, they can hold on to the head and they can bounce and whatever. And it was this big thing. We only had one of them. So everyone took turns with it and they were one, but we incorporated it as a part of our every, like as a part of our day at certain parts of the day to help regulate them because, and everybody got a turn doing this where they had to stabilize their core to stay on. They're using their legs to bounce and they're holding on with their hands. Um, and sometimes you're fending off another kid who's trying to get on at the same time. And, <laughs> and but just building these things in all the time right that it doesn't have to be something that we're like oh now it's another thing I have to carve out and make time for um it doesn't have to be that way it can really just be stuff that we're building in throughout the day and so going back to your little story about the girl that melted down before a snack you guys said it took you a long time but as you thought about her sensory what things were you checking off within that checklist of sensory that were issues for her yeah. So again, I had the privilege of having an OT uh, who was there once a week with us. So she took a look at her and just was looking at other things. Like, are there any other things that we're noticing for her that she might be getting dysregulated and nothing was checking off, right? Like um, she was using the swings outside, still dysregulated after she would um, mm -hmm. go and do like ride on the bikes and do big body play, still dysregulated after. And so we just essentially looked at like, what is she doing? Is it helping to regulate her sensory system? No. Ultimately, we realized she's hungry and tired. Okay. And that's what's dysregulating her. But yeah, we worked through a checklist of like, is she getting these other inputs? And actually the interview, so on Voice of Your Village podcast, it's episode number four. Okay. One of my favorites. And that's, it's the OT episode. And then on that blog post, you can, you can get all of my podcasts. If you go to voiceofyourvillage.com and you just search if you search occupational therapy or OT or whatever, it would pop up. On that blog post, Lori gave us an outline of like the different sensory systems and what it means and really breaks it down in like a little box there for folks of like what that means and how do we get that input. Yeah, I would, so I, that's definitely, and then I'll put in my show notes also that link. And then uh, Stuart Shanker's, some of his yeah. checklist too, because I think that when you look at the stressors to the body, that's what's trying to say uh, from a sensory perspective. And you yeah. don't have to be an occupational therapist or if people are like, well, I've already talked to my OT or my kid doesn't qualify for OTs, so we don't have one. We need them to be able to think about this in kind of... Um, broad terms initially because we don't we won't have six to eight years of training but we oh. need somewhere to start to think about that part of the triangle yeah and the whole not qualifying for me we have such a broken system right that like kids only get access to these tools that they need if they're like bad enough off course. bad enough off yep and uh, it's a real bummer uh that's a, it's a huge privilege of the school that i was working at that all these kids had access to an OT and, and the OT was there to support us, right? So she wasn't working individually with kids. She was coming in and saying like, I'm gonna observe and let you know if there are any things you should be doing specifically in your classroom or with kids. Or if we had concerns, she would take a look. And it was a game changer for us as teachers. And then I learned so much more about like the sensory systems and language development and how it all works from getting to observe these folks. Yeah. Something I wish was a part of 
school in general. I mean, we see it K through 12, right, where we have specialists in schools there to support teachers. And uh, I wish that we were seeing that birth to five. Yeah, because I can just see people, um, you know, thinking, oh, flexible seating, flexible seating will solve all the fidgeting problems, right? And yeah. so, like, maybe 10 minutes with an OT to look at your schedule and to look at the flow for children and when are they becoming dysregulated, if there's a pattern or trend in groups, and then what can you do from, like you said, quote, unquote, a sensory diet perspective, which yeah. isn't about um, going to a sensory room. No, not at all necessarily, yeah. Sometimes it's just like these kiddos, in fact, Lauren's classroom, uh, when she taught, she was teaching preschool, they had a few kids who they looked at the classroom and they're like, all right, these kids would benefit from like after lunch before nap doing some big body play work. And so they would go down the stairs and like do races or whatever. They were pulled outside the classroom with the teacher to do this, but the OT taught a gen ed teacher what to do with these kiddos so that then they could enter nap time ready to lay down and, and take a rest. And as a sleep consultant, I do sleep consulting. I also have like used OT stuff a lot and OT support in creating sleep plans, like upside down bowling, where then their head's moving between their legs or things like that before rest time so that their body really can calm. Yeah. And so let's maybe uh, get some little bit of closure. Um, because I'm looking over our notes and all the trigger things we want to talk about, but I started off asking you about mechanisms versus strategies, and I don't know that we maybe sat, you know, satiated people's curiosity about which is which. I had some great conversations with a, an amazing teacher and consultant in Spain, and she was really trying to get her head wrapped around what's a mechanism versus a strategy. So from my perspective, that would be my last thing I want to make sure we do. And then I don't know if you have one on your list about management or anything else you want to make sure we get closure. But um, for me, if you could just sort of maybe give a couple of clear examples or where people can go, and then I'll put it in show notes about mechanism versus strategy. Yep. So I have a podcast episode called Coping Mechanisms versus Coping Strategies. Uh, <laughs> I like dive in for right. minutes or whatever on this. Um, but I can give you a little synopsis, but if you want to include that in your show notes as yep. well, um, I think it's episode 38, uh, but I'll, I'll make sure I get that link to you. Um, yeah. So w essentially one numbs our feelings, the good, the bad, all of it. And the other helps us process. Right. And so what our body is designed to do is to numb the feeling. Like naturally, if you never learn a coping strategy in your whole life, you will naturally adapt coping mechanisms to survive. And so your kiddos will come to you with coping mechanisms. Every single person listening to this, myself included, has coping mechanisms. They're a part of our life. And sometimes they're essential. Sometimes it's going to take so long to process this emotion that you have to tap into some coping mechanisms to survive. We'll see this around things like death or with someone that you love or um, a friend of ours was diagnosed with cancer. She's not just going to like tomorrow have processed that. Mm -hmm. And so she needs some coping mechanisms to like numb it sometimes when it feels too overwhelming and then tap into coping strategies as well. Uh, the strategies are really like, it, you're it's gonna you're gonna be in that feeling for longer usually uh, then the mechanism is a quicker fix it starts off as like a pacifier or a lovey something that we can just like make this stop um, 
and then it evolves for us into like scrolling on a screen, binge watching a show, turning and having a glass of wine, eating, again, obsessing over things, making yourself feel like you can control something. You're like, oh, I need to just clean this space. And once I have order, it'll be fine and I'll feel fine. Um, those are our mechanisms. And in our book that's uh, coming out in 2020, we have like a whole list of what are common mechanisms for adults, what are common mechanisms for kiddos. Again, you're going to have some of these. It's okay. Well, it, you need them really to survive. Um, and so I was, uh, I'm a sexual assault survivor and I talk a lot about my journey with like in, um, I was raped at 14. And so then my like teen years and into my early twenties was really filled with mechanisms where I was just like in survival mode. Right. And then as I started to like work through stuff and go to therapy and build my own emotional intelligence more, I was able to then incorporate coping strategies and it was a game changer. I was no longer just like feeling a feeling and surviving, feeling a feeling and surviving. I was feeling fear, which we often call anxiety when we're stuck in it. Mm -hmm. And then tapping into coping strategies, which is really stinking hard because I knew mechanisms that would just make me stop feeling that fear right now. Mm -hmm. But tapping into strategies like breathing, reading a book, asking for a hug, talk therapy, um, artwork, music, movement, are all coping strategies. Anytime you're doing any of them obsessively, it's a mechanism. Yeah. But if they are things that you're, you're tapping into in the moment, or you can be doing them proactively, right? Like you can do them to help keep your system regulated, um, like daily meditation, things like that, where it's not just that you're tapping into breath when you're having a hard emotion, but teaching yourself how to do this and, and regulate them. Uh, consistently. In fact, breath work meditation is the most effective and uh, the most accessible coping strategy. It can literally pull you from your amygdala into your prefrontal cortex. And you have it with you all the time, which is why we talk about it. So let me, the, though I think people uh, like to think about themselves sometimes, and I like to them to think about themselves because once you have a handle on that, you can start thinking about others. But let's I like a couple of things. I'm not trying to sound evaluative. Just what I'm resonating with is that we will always have mechanisms. So the goal, I don't want people to think, oh, I have to give up mechanisms and only have strategies in my work with children or in my life. So that's the first thing I want people to hear. The second thing is, is that um, for me, maybe sometimes mechanisms and strategies, it could be the same it, but its intention or how it's applied makes it one or the other. So it's what you said about like, if I like go for a run, but I do it in with um, kind of obsessively, it might have eaten now into a mechanism because it's helping me avoid the processing. So it's a bit of a nuance, but if I use it and it's allowing me to process and even if it's quick, like it doesn't have to take six years of therapy, I could go for a three minute walk and be better, and it's still a strategy, right? Am I, absolutely. Am I walking the gray line okay with you? Yeah, no, absolutely. And when you start to notice, oh, I can't function without this thing, it's usually a mechanism. Yeah, thank you. That's the, I just help think that helps people go, so now if I go for a run, that's good or bad. Like, we're <laughs> like, I don't want a mechanism. I don't want to be numbing, but I need to go for a run. But I think there's just some... There's some muddy waters there, yeah, for water. sure. Yeah. Um, a, a huge indicator is if it's res resurfacing, whether it's within yourself or within a kid, it's usually been a mechanism. So if you see a kid express something and 
not long after their calm, you've problem solved, and five minutes later, you're seeing kid express again, it was a mechanism. They pushed it below the surface. Yes, it was very, right helpful. Uh, very helpful because they didn't actually get enough time to process or enough repeated times to process to then develop a strategy. Yeah, or to even tap into it long enough. So maybe we thought it, they tapped into a strategy, but they tapped into a mechanism and it was pushed below the surface. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And actually very, very cool research out of Yale this spring about anxiety and responding to kids who have, anxiety's never been higher in kids than it is right now. And it, it's a big fancy word for I'm stuck in fear, right? Yeah. Like that's what anxiety is. So really when we break it down, like we're emotion processing fear. and um, what they found, they looked at three different approaches to it. One was medication, one was therapy, and the other was parent support, teaching parents how to respond. Mm. And parent support was overwhelmingly the most effective. Yeah. Um, not to say, I'm not anti-medication or therapy. I love the crap out of both if they're helpful. But what they found was the most beneficial was teaching parents, and this could relate to teachers as well, teaching a caregiver, someone who's caring for this child, how to respond when this kid is having fear. And what, what was the game changer was not providing them with a coping mechanism or problem solving, but instead validating for them that it is really scary, what they're feeling is real and valid, and then encouraging them to tap into a coping strategy. It again means they're gonna be in it for longer. We could give them a mechanism or we could solve the problem. Oh, I'll stay with you, I'll hold your hand, I'll whatever. Yeah versus, oh, it's really hard. How are you going to help your body feel calm? Should we take some deep breaths before we problem solve, before we talk about it? Yeah. And I would say, even in that instance, what you just clarified, the taking the deep breaths was just, uh, it wasn't to hurry it. Like, no. see, that's another one of those that we just said, deep, taking deep breaths is a strategy but in that moment the way you applied it was just to allow more um processing yeah well that's it that it is a coping strategy in this instance but it's a crucial part of processing that yeah. they're tapping into a coping strategy to leave their amygdala and come into their prefrontal cortex which will take a little bit of time it's not a light switch no it's not it's just your path there so it's just i guess i just like to always the muddy the water the gray area so people don't just put breathing in one category and not the other because i can breathe and hyperventilate and i probably call it a mechanism right totally. <laughs> or something a lot, us, uh, a lot of us and this really comes back to our like birth to five teachers teaching kids how to breathe is yeah. huge huge there's a program called educalm it's out of Canada and she they have a podcast and they have a curriculum and it's really on like teaching kids mindfulness and there's so many of these now but I really like theirs and it really teaches kids how to breathe effectively yeah mm, I, I had a speech therapist that worked on that for with me for a while <laughs> only breathe from like right the top half of me such yeah. shallow breaths and then I think on Barb's uh, conference in year one, uh, a speaker, I should remember his name, but I will get it in a minute and put in the show notes. But, you know, he was like doing belly breathing when you're already calm doesn't make a lot of sense because it's really hard when you're at a low respiratory rate to take a deep breath. Like you have to really work at it. But if you've been running around and then you practice it, then you notice the contrast. Yeah, it's rad. Okay. So any, any last takeaways or, um, 
I already said I'm not using reinforcement any word reinforcement anymore, but is there anything on your hard no list or hard takeaway list? Yeah. Yeah. I guess like the thing that I hope people leave this with is the idea that like we don't have to solve the problem. In fact, if we do, we're going to keep seeing the problem over and over. Teaching kids that they can have hard feelings and we're okay with them. They're not responsible for feeling calm to make us feel comfortable, but that we can handle their hard stuff and they can tap into coping strategies when they're ready so that we can problem solve when they're ready is what I'd love to have. And really for teachers to have built the, their own emotion processing around the fear of perception and the fear of losing control because you are going to become in the most control of your classroom when your kids know how to process their emotions and it'll get ugly before it gets pretty. And I I would say following on almost every part of what you said, your takeaway, mine would be that it's um, it being self-regulation as a broad construct. It must be intentionally taught just like we would intentionally teach anything in literacy or math or any other body part that we have to give this much attention to and intention to and um, differentiation to. So just all the constructs we use around quality instruction absolutely apply to this idea of children becoming self-regulated. Yeah. And you know what? It's just like reading where we don't read to an infant expecting them to read back to us the next day. We read to an infant expecting them to read back to us years later. If you're starting this work with kids, don't expect to see a change tomorrow. Expect to see a change down the road. It's a long-term game and you got to commit to it now. Yeah, absolutely. Because just from a prefrontal cortex development perspective, it's a long game (laughs) and people are a little bit, um, already in the United States at least, hyped up on trying to rush all areas of development, reading included. Um, So I think everybody needs to take a step back and say, this takes a while to develop in humans. We are, our brain is underdeveloped and we are dysregulated as a community. And so you put all that together and we're not, we shouldn't be surprised that many people are having a meltdown on aisle nine. Totally. Totally. Yeah, it's so true. So true. Well, thank you so much for having me. If folks want to dive in deeper, I have Voices of Your Village podcast, um, wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you want it app free, we have it on our website as well at voicesofyourvillage.com. And then I have um, a social media presence. I like to hang out on social media. We have an Instagram seed.and.so, S-E-W. And then we have a free Facebook group that I'm kind of obsessed with. We um, have all different experts in the field of early ed. We have OTs and SLPs and pediatricians and developmental specialists, all sorts of folks in there, uh, including myself. And then people can just pile in questions and we all tag team and answer and and get them support um, so that it's not just other parents or teachers in the trenches, but that you have other experts in the field that support you as well. And that's free. It's seed and sow colon voices of your village. So where can people connect with you, Christy? (laughs) 
So I have two websites, so it gets a little bit confusing as well. But if you are a professional development provider or coach or in some way helping adults and want to think about your own emotional intelligence or helping raise the emotional intelligence of adult professionals, it's at christypf.com. Uh, and I have a regular blog there and everything is centered around how do we transform professional development with this twist of raising our emotional intelligence, which of course includes self-regulation. Then if you are looking for practical strategies about how to help build children's brains, how to work with groups of children with diverse abilities. I'm at preKteachandplay.com. So it's preKteachandplay.com. Also have a podcast there, preKteachandplay.com, um, or rather preKteachandplay uh, podcast and a blog. But it's almost all free stuff, just practical ideas about how to help uh, young children grow and develop and thrive with an emphasis on, of course, self-regulation, but really on inclusive communities. And then I'm also on social media, primarily on Facebook and a little bit on Twitter and LinkedIn. But I try to hang out every day on Facebook, giving strategies to members of the early care and education revolution so that we can help all children thrive, of course, in school, but also in life. Awesome. I love it. Well, thanks for hanging out with me. Yeah, thank you. This is so perfect. And I, I can't wait till people listen again with new ideas about how to not only do the mechanisms and the strategies, but to really think about the long game and how we allow children to process these big emotions. Love it. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, search Seed and Sow colon Voices of Your Village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. 
Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff.